I think it's all the more important now with the changing d- dynamic with folks going into the in and out of office buildings. It's not the same Monday through Friday, eight to five customer in that seat. We need to provide service that meets the, their demands. And so, you know, that midday service becomes all the more important if we're going to attract riders. I'm excited today to be with Mike Noland. Mike is president and general manager at the South Shoreline, the Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District in Indiana. And he's also chair of the United States Commuter Rail Coalition. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Great to uh, have this. Our our mutual friend, Marcelo Bravo, connected us. I appreciate him doing that. Mike, uh, tell me some about what you do. I am the president and general manager of the passenger operation known as the South Shoreline. And we're a 90-mile commuter railroad that operates between the South Bend International Airport and Millennium Station in downtown Chicago. We've been in existence since 1908. Um, and uh, so we're 100 and, let me do the math, 115 years or so old. And uh, we're, we're proud to serve the residents here in Northwest Indiana. And uh, your background is you have a long background in rail. I mean, you were 21 years at Metro, right? Actually, 28 years at Metro. Started off in HR and wound up uh, as in, in law and as general counsel and then uh, as the uh, deputy executive director. And then from there, I went into the private sector rail industry and I worked for a short line freight holding company. Also did a little bit of passenger rail. Um, and then in 2014, uh, the South Shoreline through the, the and their parent it is the Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District reached out and said, our, our uh, general manager is retiring. Would you consider coming over here and interview for the job? And the rest is history. There's so much to talk about when it comes to commuter rail. And for those who don't know, Metra is the, the big Chicago commuter rail system. Are they the largest in the country? You know, it depends on who's measuring and what you're using to measure for maybe yeah. distance. They're certainly up in the top three with Metro North and Long Island. So, right. Uh, That's what I thought. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, your operation in specific, and then we'll we'll um, open up a little bit to what's happening in the nation as commuter rails are kind of adapting to a new three-day city that's happening in a lot. Is that happening in, uh, in your area as well, where people are using commuter rail more in the middle of the week? Yes, somewhat. We're, we're a little unique, and I'll get into that in a minute, Paul. Uh, and we do operate on Jim Derwinski's system in Chicago. Okay. So, you know, of our 90-mile route, 75 miles is either owned, mostly owned, uh, all dispatched, all maintained, all capital projects are done by us. We then get to Chicago at 115th Street in Kensington, and we jump on Jim Derwinski's Metro Electric system, for the last 14 and a half miles of our ride. Today, we are running 39 trains every weekday and 21 trains on weekends in and out of Chicago. Pre-pandemic, we were running about three and a half million rides a year. We're right now at about 50% of that level, which roughly for our industries, but puts us right in the middle. There's okay. some of us who are you know, lower in the 30% range. And there's others, uh, specifically um, uh, Metro North, uh, I know, has reported that at, at times they're at 70% or greater. As a whole, our industry is right around 50%. We have seen our numbers as an industry steadily climbing, you know, inching back up 
as you mentioned, the the you know the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday phenomenon where the collars of Friday, Monday and Friday are weaker. That's we've seen that as an industry trend. It's a little different here on the South Shore. We've always had a fair amount of discretionary riders being a 90-mile corridor. We're two railroads in one. Our service from South Bend is the 90-mile route, and that's more of an inner city kind of service. Whereas as you get closer in from our Michigan City, and especially from Chesterton, Indiana, uh, Ogden Dunes, Gary, East Chicago, Hammond, that's more of your typical commuter uh, service. Our, our, our discretionary traveler, the father out traveler, has been pretty robust. They're coming back quicker. Uh, yes. So we are, we're still seeing good numbers on Fridays and on weekends, but we are still, you know, we're, we're still struggling at the 50% level, although growing slowly as, as employers make that decision on who should come back to the office and how many days of the week are they coming back? That's the big question. Where will that level out is, the, is I think, what we're trying to understand. Right. If I were to get on at South Bend and ride into Chicago, the full 90 miles, how much would I pay? You'd pay $14 a one-way ticket. Uh, you know, as, <laughs> I couldn't even drive it for that price. <laughs> yeah, you know, and a lot of it's toll road, and then you get parking issues in Chicago. Um, and so we're a good bargain. We are looking at fair structure, uh, as, as many of us are, in trying to entice people come back to come back to our trains. I don't, not, not many of us have increased fares because of the headwinds with ridership uh, to keep up. So that's, you know, that's an issue that we're all facing, a challenge. Right. Yeah, it's a good, it, I'll, I'll agree with you. It's a great bargain at $14 to ride. Yeah. Now, South Bend, isn't that where Mayor Pete, who's currently Secretary of Transportation, is from? You got that right. Um, wow. Mayor, Mayor Pete and I worked very closely for a number of years on a major infrastructure project that he strongly supported. He now obviously is, is uh, Secretary Pete uh, in heading up the DOT in Washington, uh, but he's always been a big proponent of commuter rail. He saw, as he called it, his phrase was connectivity is the new currency, and mm. he wanted greater connectivity between South Bend and Chicago. So not only the discretionary traveler, but the business community that would move people back and forth between business campuses between South Bend and Chicago. So huge advocate of commuter and passenger rail. So uh, worked very closely with Secretary um, Buttigieg. You mentioned, you know, uh, not raising fares because of the impact it could have on ridership. Let's talk about the funding of your agency itself. How do you get your money uh, and how much do fares cover those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, uh, pre- Pre-pandemic, we were right around the 50% uh, fare box recovery mark. We'd ebb and flow above and below that, but that was always our target. The balance of our fares come from a variety of sources. Uh, we get a portion of sales tax directly from the state of Indiana. We certainly had some marketing and, and um, uh, leasing revenue that came in. We are able to utilize uh, FTA Section 5307 on some of our maintenance activities, which, you know, lowers our operating expense. So, you know, all in all, it's a mixture of, of state and local revenues. In addition, as I mentioned, I run on Jim Derwinski's railroad in Chicago, right. but I also am a contract carrier of Metris. So I pick up uh, passengers in the state of Illinois. And, and for that, Metro pays, compensates me to provide that service. So that's another source of revenue for us as well. A lot of commuter rails operate with their own employees, but many also contract out with companies like Keolis, TransDev, others. Is that right? 
Yeah, but on, uh, we 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 make we employ uh, dire- we directly run and operate and employ the folks who run our railroad. We do not have a third party contractor who's running service for us. Certainly aware of that model. Um, I mean, you might look at it from the standpoint of Metro hires us <laughs> as service carrier to provide their service along our line in Illinois. You know, we we directly employ those who the folks who run our railroad. Gotcha. Have you adjusted routes? you know, the, the frequency and those kind of things. Talk to us about how you've done that based on what the current ridership patterns are. You, you're hauling about 50% of the passengers. Are you still running the same frequency or have you reduced and then raised it on weekends to meet new demand there? Or talk to us about that. Okay. So that's a perfect transition into the fact that we are in, we're embarked on a two-year, uh, $650 million double tracking project over a 26-mile quarter on our system. Wow. That that will open up huge opportunities to increase frequency, improve on-time performance, and drive time to market down to, to the central business district down significantly. And so we made the decision not to do any changes. Um, essentially, um, we shut down our line between Gary, Indiana, and Michigan City, that 26-mile corridor, and we're executing a bus bridge so that the contractor has a greenfield site in order to complete those improvements. So right now you get on the train in South Bend, you take the train to to Michigan City, you get off at Michigan City, you get on a bus, the bus then picks up the four or five station passengers between Michigan City and Gary, drops people off at Gary, they get back on the train in Gary, they go to Chicago, and then they repeat that on the way back. How much time does that add to their trip? It probably adds 10 to 15 minutes for the people that are that are in the bus bridge geography. Um, And so we made the decision that we're not going to tinker with schedules at this point in time until we get through with the project. And the project is about 80 percent complete now. We'll open up for new revenue service next May. And at that point, we are rolling out a brand new schedule with significantly improved service, both, as I mentioned, um, uh, better better intervals to between uh, Indiana and Chicago, as well as 14 additional trains. And that kind of pivots to something we've talked about, which is looking at what the new rider wants and, and, and looking at service opportunities. One of the reasons we did the project is we had gaps in our midday schedule. And that we always saw as a headwind or a challenge to growing our service. I think it's all the more important now with the changing d- dynamic with folks going into the in and out of office buildings, it's not the same Monday through Friday, eight to five customer in that seat. We need to provide service that meets the, their demands. And so, you know, that midday service becomes all the more important if we're going to attract riders. So talk to us about what double tracking is for people who aren't familiar with it and how that will help. So from Gary, Indiana, all the way into Chicago, from Gary to where we get on the metro system, about 30 miles, we have a double track railroad so that if um, one, if something happens on one track, we have crossovers. Think of those as passing lanes. And we can move a train over to the opposite track, go around an issue uh, or a slower train, and then come back to the, the one track that we were that we were on. It gives us tremendous flexibility. So from that point, from Gary to where we get on Metro, it's double track. And then Jim Derwinski's got a quadruple track railroad. So it's a wonderful network and it's all grade separated there. 
from Gary for the next 26 miles between Gary and Michigan City were mostly on single track railroad. So I kind of describe it for the folks that don't understand that environment as when you're on a two lane highway in a construction project and and they're doing construction work and the flagger uh, puts out his stop sign while the traffic from the other end goes. And then when all that traffic clears, the flagger turns it around and lets you go the other direction. That's our environment on a day-to-day basis over this 26-mile corridor. So in the morning, when we send our our fleet into Chicago, uh, it's kind of like a a parade. Everybody follows the leader. And if anything happens, everybody behind the leader slows down. It takes a delay. And everybody coming from the opposite direction has to wait until all that traffic clears to go the other direction. So we really can't run um, a a express-type service or limited-type service other than the first train in the morning. Um, With double track, we'll be able to run significantly improved skip-stop or limited service. Uh, We can have a local train, we can have an express train, and they both can be occupying uh, the the two tracks that we're now building. Uh, and, and, And in addition to that, the flexibility from a scheduling standpoint, if we have an issue, if there's a mechanical issue or there's a tree on the uh, obstruction on the track or we have a wire overhead wire issue on one track, we're not stopped. We have another track that we can operate on. So yeah. tremendous flexibility for us. I should mention that that we're also, in addition to the double track project, we're building a um, eight mile extension off our main line. So I've got a, a you know, we're expanding um, you know, so uh, the state of Indiana has pushed all in into commuter rail. So w- where there may be headwinds in the industry, we're bullish here in the state of Indiana. And we're a pretty conservative state. Um, we're not necessarily known as, you know, promoting transit for transit's sake. They're doing it because they see an economic return on investment. That's a message that we need to continue to get out to those who are our supporters as we work in Congress to preserve our funding. Who owns the tracks? We do. Uh, South Shoreline, uh, back in 1990, this railroad was being operated by a private sector railroad. That railroad went bankrupt um, with, with help from the state and the federal government. We purchased the line, the asset, and we now own and maintain the line. We have a freight tenant who operates on us. Um, and then, as I mentioned, when we get into Chicago, for the last 15 miles of our 90-mile route, we have a trackage rights agreement with Metro. We we need to provide, as an industry, and we are looking to do that, better off-peak service because our clusters in the peak periods that we used to rely on, 6 to 9 in the morning and 4 to 7 at night, um, are changing. And right. you know there are individuals that may be going to the office three days a week, but they're not necessarily there from 8 to 5. They're there for maybe core hours and then they're jumping on a train, or if we're not providing them a good service, they're getting back in their car and driving back home. And then they're they're on a Zoom call or on a Teams meeting. And so it's our belief that, uh, especially for us, our new service offerings next May are going to position us really well for the changing uh, business climate uh, that we need to service as this industry evolves. And are you? Um... Talk to us about the electric trains versus uh, diesel and and how you are powered there. Well, yeah, we have 1500 volt overhead uh, DC power, uh, which matches up with the the, the system uh, that Metro uses uh, in Chicago. Uh, we then convert that power to AC for our propulsion system. 
Um, and that's been our operation since, oh, I want to say uh, 1925 or so, the city of Chicago required that on the lakefront, um, the railroads electrified. So that's been the footprint and the requirement to get into Chicago. So that's what we followed for the last hundred years or so. That's amazing. And uh, so um, maybe let's uh, branch out a little bit to the industry now and talk about some of the challenges the industry is facing because you are chair of the Commuter Rail Coalition. Um, first off, tell us what the Commuter Rail Coalition is and how many commuter rail members you have across the country, et cetera. I say there's 31 commuter rail properties now in existence in the country. I think we're well over 20. I think we're getting close to 23 or 24 of those properties that are members as long as well as um, our uh, Marcelo's one of our um, supporters from from industry, business and industry that provides services to the commuter commuter rail industry. And um, from a from a ridership standpoint, from a overall percentage of of riders, I think. Our members transport 95% of all commuter rail riders in the country. We'd love to see 100% of commuter rails in the country join us. We're really a singular focused entity. Uh, We are advocates for commuter rail. That's all we do. That's our 100% focus. We're driven to support initiatives, whether they be legislative or otherwise, um, to, to support growth in and and success of uh, commuter rail in this country. What are your uh, ideas on the way commuter rails can help bring people back? First of all, as I mentioned, and as we're lit, uh, rolling out, better midday service. Okay. We, we, we need to provide really good service off of those peaks so that the business rider has a reason not to drive their car into the central business district. Here in Chicago, we just got the designation as being the most congested highway system in the country, second most congested in the world. That there are people coming in and out of downtown Chicago, that's low-hanging fruit for us. We need to figure out how to get them out of their vehicles and make it attractive to them to get on our trains. So things like Wi-Fi on our trains. uh, you know, good schedules in the in the midday. Other amenities, we have to figure out what is attractive to the folks that are currently deciding to go in a couple days a week. How do we get them out of their cars and onto our system? And one of the things is we needed to, to promote the fact that we're 18 times safer. It's 18 times safer to be on our trains than it is to be on the highway driving your car or said conversely, you're 18 times more likely to be in an accident driving your car than you would be on our train. So we're safe, we're we're efficient. Um, We need to, we need to be more responsive to, from a schedule standpoint, and I think that's where our industry is headed, be more responsive. We need to look at ways to bring the time down to market, Um, you know, all those opportunities to invest in our systems. So, you know, reliability, Comfort, safety, all those things are important to our rider. One of the, uh, I have a friend that runs the Metrolink service in Toronto. One of the cool things that they've done there, I'm sure you've heard about it, is they have a deal with a local grocery chain called Loblaws. And when commuters ride in the train into the city, uh, they can order their groceries online 
they're sent a code and then they when they ride the train back to the station there's refrigerated lockers there and their groceries have been delivered to the locker they enter in the code and that way they don't have to stop at the grocery store on the way home i really think those kind of extra amenities are another great way to encourage people you know, you've got the safety you've got the cost factor i mean you couldn't park in Chicago for the price of your train ride uh, into the city, you know? So those kind of things, like you said, I think uh, make make the case for us, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and we need to get in the mindset of the drive. Why is someone driving? Um, it, it, and, and part of it is that individual freedom. Um, and it's the, you know, I want to, I want to go when I want to go and I want to leave when I want to leave. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm talking about when I talk about increased frequencies in the midday. So that the so that that person looks at it and says, "Oh, well, yeah, I know I have that freedom, but wow, there's a, there's there's a lot of train service, and so now I can decide I've got the freedom to leave and get the train and not have to, um, you know, endure the traffic. And my God, there's Wi-Fi, so I can connect up and maybe I can I can listen into that Teams meeting um, and just and, and be as productive during the workday, yes, uh, and not skip a beat. It's a changed working environment, and we need to change with it." Let's talk a little bit about, if, if you care to speak on a little bit, one of the big issues that I continue to hear around the country is the dearth of high-speed rail. Why can't we get high-speed rail? We've got a couple private lines that are higher speed, uh, Brightline trains in Florida. Um, I know our train sets used to go like 131 miles per hour, but that's nowhere near the maglev trains in Japan and Europe, et cetera. What's going on with high-speed rail in America, Mike? Well, if you want to anoint me supreme commander of the world, the, the simple fix is that the rails become just like the interstate highway system. And that's how they do it over in Europe. Um, you know, the, in, in England, the, the rail bed is owned by the country and access is granted to that rail system. And there's a priority given to passenger rail. And they, and they weave into their network, that rail network, the freight traffic that's essential as well. As you know, that's not how it is here. Everybody so it's the opposite owns, here. <laughs> it's the opposite. Everybody yeah. owns their own right of way and um, they, nobody wants to be at a competitive disadvantage uh, in the freight rail industry. And well, I'm sure they'll all say, and I've heard them say that they support passenger rail, but it, unless you have, in my opinion, unless you had that kind of system where it was an open network like our interstate highway system, um, it's a, it's an incredible challenge to uh, implement high speed rail, and um, that's one hurdle. The other the other hurdle is, and this has just been my observation: whenever somebody wants high speed rail, everybody along the line wants a stop. I always joke that if Southwest Airline operated that way, and they were flying to Denver, they take off out of Midway Airport, they go thirty miles, and they 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 land in. Um, in Aurora, and they go another 15 miles, and they'd land in uh, St. Charles, and then another 15 miles. You know, they would just keep going, stopping along the way. High-speed rail has to has to run over long distances to be effective, and um, so that's a fundamental decision that has to be made. And the communities along the line have to realize that that if you want it to be effective, you need to build a Chicago to Detroit corridor or you know, Chicago to St. Louis and run it all the way, um, just like the airlines do. Um, but again, um, I'm a commuter rail guy, so I'm I'm not here to fix the high speed rail right. problem. <laughs> well, then let's let's. Uh, but that's great. I really appreciate that. Uh, 
That's good feedback on there. I agree. So talk to us about what's happening in the industry writ large right now of commuter rail. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an issue with our funding. Um, Many of us have talked about the fiscal cliff that we all face. We all tremendously benefited by the relief um, acts, CARES Act, and the, the other acts that kept us running during the height of the pandemic. And we have the ability, because of good sound management and and resource uh, planning, to continue to run for several years, but left uncorrected because of the loss of ridership. We've we've got a, many of us have a giant hole in our budget. I've seen um, that New York has have solved their fiscal cliff, it seems like, with some additional state funding. I think there's... Ozil in California, at least in the Bay Area, through some tolls. We're all looking at trying to plug that gap that that the lost ridership is causing. So not only are we, you know, so we're at 50% ridership. Okay, we've got capacity on our trains, but that also means from a fare box recovery standpoint, we're we're nowhere near that 50% recovery standpoint. And we've we've got a hole in our budget. And at some point in time, that has to get solved. So many of us are talking locally to our, our, our funding providers, whether it be our general assemblies or our local entities or a combination of both to figure out a way to provide a funding source to keep us going. Uh, because in addition to, you know, even though we're at 50%, we provide significant economic return, uh, even at 50% to the local communities that we support. Um, the, there is a wonderful economic throw that we bring. And, and I know here in Northwest Indiana, we've done studies that the folks who ride our train going to Chicago earn a 40% wage premium because they get higher wages um, in, in Chicago than they do out here in Northwest Indiana. So we're, a, we're an economic engine. We need to find ways to bring people back to the train, but we also need to set to solve that fiscal cliff here in the short term. I believe it's a short-term problem. I'm a glass half empty or half full person. I believe we're going to, we are going to bring people back and we're going to figure it out, but it's going to, I do believe it's going to take some, a couple of years before that all levels out. What, what else, uh, what other thoughts do you have here as we close up? Um, you know, we got a great infrastructure bill. Paul, you know, I've been in this industry a long time. I think either one of us has seen the kind of infrastructure money that's available. And uh, not only the state of good repair increase that we've seen, but also the competitive grants and the money that's available for commuter and passenger rails, unlike anything I've ever seen before, we need to we need to leverage that and we need to invest it in our systems. And we need to analyze ways where we've got bottlenecks or we have areas where we can improve our service. And I'll tell you this, that it's not just going from 79 miles to 90. It's where you've got 25 miles speed limits and you can go to 50. It's the places where you've got the lower speeds where you can, by a, a, a civil in, uh, improvement, um, increase those significantly is where we gain time. And and time is really what our riders value. So yes, uh, that's what I think our industry needs to focus on, preserving our, our dollars, making sure that when there's an opportunity for legislation to, that either promotes us or protects us, that we take advantage of it and be ready and then, you know, I'm bullish. I, I, I am. This is a great industry and, and I see nothing but great things in the future. 
Thank you so much, Mike Nolan, for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged and for kind of painting a path forward for other commuter rail agencies, the 31 here in the U.S. and all those around the world of uh, retracting new passengers and providing better service for them. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about mentorship, leadership, and kindness with the hopes it'll inspire you to pay it forward. Well, it was great hearing Mike Nolan's discussion with Paul, the climb and rise from HR to legal to deputy executive director, and then eventually GM. Again, showing opportunity is abundant in our industry. What a fascinating call it was in hearing the in-depth knowledge of passenger patterns, adapting to the daily struggles of our industry, and pivoting that agencies do daily. Where I'm going with all this? Well, the transit conference season is heating up. And with the many fall shows ahead of us that we'll all be attending, including the large App to Transform conference, it's a perfect interview to hear that reiterates the incredible knowledge and peer sharing that is part of our industry. I always say that it's amazing the learning and the transit education that's available for free at every conference. The panels, the sessions, the meetings, and the peer networking, it's exciting to look forward to. This was another great example of mentorship in action. Just the way Mike eloquently talked to state revenues, subsidies, local and state policy, contracted services, scheduling challenges, and adaptations that agencies go through reiterates that we should be listening to our peers. And your kindness challenge for this week is to make sure that with all the upcoming travel in the fall, you take time to thank someone who is part of your travel journey. Whether it's airline, hotel, or restaurant staff, just make their day. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Kindness is cool. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged with our special guest, Mike Noland, President and General Manager of the South Shore Line in Northwestern Indiana. Now, coming up next week on the show, we have Diana Kotler, CEO of the Anaheim Transit Network. Learn how she helps people who live and visit the happiest place on earth get around the city. And while you're listening, you could take a moment to rate and review Transit Unplugged wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Rating and reviewing helps other people find the show and become part of our transit community. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. Transit Unplugged is brought to you by Medaxo. At Medaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling those stories. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.